0: Hello. Good evening. Right. Still have a lot of energy. Great. Um, So uh, this morning I didn't introduce myself at all. I just said, all right, let's read Jeremiah. Um, So uh, I'm going to say hello. My name's Logan. Uh, I moved here about a year ago from Durham, uh, but I'm obviously not from there. Can you tell? Yeah. Apparently someone this morning was like, where's his accent from? Um, so, obviously, I'm originally from California, and I'll just briefly speak to you in my native tongue and say, What up, home skillets? That means good evening in your tongue. Uh, so, I'm really honored uh, and humbled to be able to uh, speak about this really powerful text, uh, Jeremiah 18. Uh, in this series. Thank you, Ed, uh, for letting me do it when I jokingly said, let me preach on Jeremiah 18. He said, "Yep, here you go. Uh, So I guess I've roped myself into this now. Um, So uh, as Ed said, uh, I moved down here to uh, teach at the university. And in a really cliche way at church, I have to say, I teach New Testament at the university. Mm, Yeah, hello to like four of my students that are here. Um, So Let's jump in. I'm going to read the text, and then we're going to uh, think about uh, dust. So, uh, can we get the... Yeah. Uh, Here we go. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Get up and go down to the potter's workshop, and I will get you to understand my words there. So, I went down to the potter's workshop, and he was doing his work on the wheel, There. The vessel he was making with clay kept getting misshapen in the potter's hand, but he would reuse it and reshape it into another vessel as it seemed right to him. Then a word came to me from God. Can I not do with you, O house of Israel, just as this potter has done? This is God's message. Just like the clay in the potter's hand, so you are in my hand. O house of Israel. At one moment, I may warn a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, but if they turn from their evil, I will respond by withholding the disaster that I had planned to bring on them. And at another moment, I may warn a nation or a kingdom uh, that I will build and plant it, but if it does what I say is evil by not listening to what I say, then I will respond By withholding the good that I had planned to give them. Okay, so as we heard last week, and probably a bit the week before that. Uh, Jeremiah is a really tough book. Uh, Now, it's not so much tough because it's like really poetic and the Hebrew is difficult and it's difficult to interpret. Although that is also true. It's very, very difficult to translate. Um, uh, It's more, I'd say it's more difficult because it's just a book that's filled with tragedy. Like, it's just a really depressing book to read, um, as you may know, Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet because so often there are scenes of him in just utter anguish, watching it, as he watches what happens to his people. So God has given Jeremiah this seemingly impossible task. Uh, he was called probably as a teenager uh, to preach. Uh, warning uh, preach warnings to his people to get them to turn back from the evil and the injustice and the disobedience that they were perpetuating in the land, but as it goes with so many of the prophets, they don 't listen and so Jeremiah and we see very much of Jeremiah, his experience of trying to preach to these people and them just being like, Yeah, shut up in one in a few instances actually. Uh, there are counter-prophets that arise and go, uh, actually, I'm sending the message from God, and Jeremiah is an idiot. Uh, So he gets ridiculed and mocked. He gets opposed. People just generally don't listen to him. And he gets really upset with God as well um, for giving him this seemingly impossible task that has made him and brought him to so much Despair. And part of the reason why he knows uh, or why he feels so much in anguish, is that he knows what's going to happen if Israel persists in disobedience. If they persist in disobedience, God will send them into exile. He will uproot them from their place in the promised land, and he will send them into another nation to be ruled over by a foreign people. Now, part of the reason why uh, Jeremiah knows this is because previously in Israel's history, this had actually happened before. Uh, So, uh, before, when when, King, when David and Solomon were kings over Israel, all 12 tribes were all happy and nice and united together. It was the United Kingdom of Israel. Uh, but when, when Solomon's son, Rehoboam, decided to really hike up the taxes, 10 tribes of Israel were like, ha, no, no. Uh, we're not going to pay that. We're going to start our own kingdom. Uh, so 10 of the tribes go up off into the north, and they start their own dynasty and their own kingdom uh, and kind of do their own thing. And that is confusingly called the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, now, the two tribes that stick with uh, Solomon's son uh, are Judah and Benjamin, and they set up in the south what's called the kingdom of Judah. Now, according to the book of First Kings, all of the kings in the northern kingdom were evil. Every single one did evil inside of the Lord. They made them worship other gods. They ignored God's laws. They ignored his commandments. They didn't perpetuate justice in the land. And God was like, all right, it's time for some discipline. And in 722 BCE, the neighboring superpower at the time, the Assyrians, come in, wipe them out, and take them onto to exile. Now, the southern kingdom where Jeremiah is from and to whom Jeremiah is preaching about 100 years later... Um, has been a bit more obedient, not always, uh, but a bit less bad than the northern kingdom. So they've been given a bit more time. Uh, But Jeremiah knows where this is going to go. Jeremiah is preaching about 100 years after this, and he knows that if they continue to do this, Babylon, who's the contemporary superpower at that time, is going to do the same thing to the southern kingdom as what they saw Assyria do to the northern kingdom. So... Jeremiah is really, really in anguish about what he knows is going to happen. But, as mentioned, they don't listen to him. He's mocked, he's ridiculed, he's ignored, he's laughed at, other prophets prophesy against him, whatever. And Jeremiah just is sitting in the midst of this utter chaos, and God comes to him and said, all right, Jeremiah, I'm going to give you a message of hope. And, And I know that you're in this... Wild, wild time where you're experiencing all this anguish and pain, but you know what you need, Jeremiah? What you need in this moment more than anything is to go look at some art. You need to go watch somebody work with clay. That's really what you need. Bit of a weird request, but Jeremiah is like, okay. So he gets up and he goes to the potter's house so, uh, and I really, I really just don't, I want us to think about this for a moment and not, uh, not just skirt by the, the kind of image, the fact that God is using this image of art. So, as, as I'm sure you know, uh, I'm sure you've heard many a sermon uh, in times past where, uh, a preacher will introduce some, like, funny, interesting story to bring you in, and it makes everyone laugh. Notice that I didn't do that. Uh, and then, <laughs> um, they pivot at some point to say something about how this story connects to something about Jesus when really there's, like, no connection at all, and the beginning is just, like, a way to bring you in because you're probably not focused yet. Um, This is not that. (laughs) So in verse 2, what God says to Jeremiah is, when you go down to the potter's house, I will make you understand my words. It is there that I will get you to understand my words. Which means that this image and understanding the hope that's in this passage is not separable from the artistic image that God is giving Jeremiah, that God is having Jeremiah watch. God doesn't just say, hey, Jeremiah, you should have some hope. Things are going to be okay. God tries to get on Jeremiah's level and say, hmm, what do you need? Go watch the potter. Um, so God is not getting Jeremiah just to think about Israel or to think about hope or to think about clay. He's getting him to think with clay. And so we're going to do the same thing this evening. Uh, so, uh, naturally in a bit of like maybe method acting, uh, extraness, uh, I decided that if I was preaching on Jeremiah 18, uh, I need to actually go do this. So, uh, that's a thing, uh, that I did, uh, with another person from this church. Uh, I decided that I would go and actually work and take a, uh, clay throwing class. Uh, throwing clay means working with clay on a wheel, uh, so that I could understand this passage better. And I, and I learned a lot of things by reading about what other potters have written and also in my own experience. Uh, and so I'm gonna share some of these um, points with you. So those of you who, oh, sorry, the thing I created is this, yay, yay. It's very small and we'll come back to the reason for that in a moment. I'm sure there's a point there, um, thank you. Uh, so those of you who I work with clay, we will know this, uh, if you're forming something on a wheel, like a cup or a bowl or a vase or whatever, as you go along, you can kind of like feel some like weird wonky bits like start to form. Uh, but if you do that, you know, as they start to like push back on you and they, it starts to get all, it's all lopsided, you can kind of like fix it in the moment. But if you end up getting towards the end of your creation, uh, and it's still kind of wonky and wobbly and not out of sorts, you actually can't fix it at that point on the wheel. You have two options. Uh, You can either chop off the section uh, that's wonky and throw it out, uh, or you can start from the beginning. You can collapse it back again, and you can start from scratch and start to try and work out what you were trying to do from the beginning. Uh, In other words, Throwing clay is really not easy. It's actually really difficult. And often when you're trying to create something, you have to take multiple and multiple and multiple attempts to try and get the clay to do what you want it to do. Now, in some Christian circles, I've heard people use the potter and clay imagery uh, to talk about how God has absolute and straightforward and easy control over everything like some kind of cosmic control freak Uh, but one of the things that people who throw clay uh, will know uh, is that clay just doesn't always do what humans want clay frustrates humans and so working with clay on the wheel requires patient attentiveness and for many potters it takes them Years to figure out how to listen to the clay, work with its stubbornness. And in fact, uh, here's uh, one potter who says that uh, clay has a mind of its own. So uh, this potter says, uh, the funny thing about clay is it kind of has a mind of its own. You can start out making one thing, and sometimes it turns into something completely different. Now, you might just think, like, Logan, that sounds like a really horrible... Artist. Maybe that person just sucks at throwing clay. Uh, well, let's have another one. I learned how to throw a pot by first learning about the nature of the clay. Clay is very temperamental. It has a mind of its own. To shape it into something useful, you have to know how it will behave under the pressure of your fingers. Maybe both of these people suck at throwing clay. Once you've learned that clay has a mind of its own, the next step is to convince it to behave. All quotes from really, really expert potters. Now, another quote uh, that I'll share in just a moment um, starts out by making the point um, that... Potters might have intentions for a certain piece of clay, but they need to make sure those intentions are open-ended so that they respond to the clay. And sometimes their final creation is not exactly the same as what they first had in mind at the beginning. So rather, uh, in pottery, this uh, uh, potter says, um, the intention to be in a relationship doesn't mean that we make sure things unfold entirely to a script of our own devising rather we enter into partnership and learn to accommodate the new circumstances and desires of that other making pots with this kind of intention means that we are constantly willing to learn from the clay and respond to it at every turn of the wheel So one thing that the image of the clay and the potter teaches us in Jeremiah 18 is that God is responsive to his people. He works with them. He is patient with them. God, of course, had an intention for Israel, which Josh talked about last week. God called Abraham and promised that all the the nations of the earth will be blessed in you. God wanted to create his people into a people for his own possession, an obedient people who are in a loving relationship um, with God. And yet, Israel at the time of Jeremiah had not become the kind of people that he had wanted. The clay had frustrated the initial plans of the divine potter. Yet, to stay faithful to his own promise, to his people, to his own covenant, He persisted with them. He was patient with them. And he intended to work with them to try and get beyond their stubbornness. Now, when he has intentions for his people, for his clay, if the clay pushes back, God moves his hands in a new way in response to the clay and tries to work out his intentions in dialogue with the clay. Now, like a master potter with clay... Therefore, God knows how to carefully respond to it, even when it's not working with him. And this means that, curiously, Jeremiah 18 teaches us that God does not determine the destiny and story of his people in a single-handed way. He works with them. His sovereignty, his rulership over all things is actually most clearly shown in this passage, not in his meticulous, obsessive control over every single event, but rather in his masterful skill in delicately and cautiously and patiently shaping his people into the kind of vessel that he wants them to become. Now, let's just think about this a moment. Step back and think at the 30,000 foot level. We're literally talking about the God who creates all things. The ruler over all things. The one who spoke everything into existence. He could flick the sun into the next galaxy if he wanted to. He could speak a little word and every volcano on the earth would erupt. And yet, That is not the kind of power by which God decides to relate to his people. The God of the universe, the creator of all things, has decided to enter into a dynamic and responsive relationship with his people. In other words, he has decided to limit himself to be in this relationship, which means that God has not decided to determine our destiny all by himself. Rather, he partners with us. Now, I think, I think we actually understand this intuitively. It's not as paradoxical as it sounds. A masterful potter doesn't just snap their fingers and boom, a beautiful bowl appears on, on, the, uh, on the wheel. If they did that, they'd probably be a magician, And not a potter. You wouldn't be like, wow, that person is such a good potter. They just snapped their fingers and boom, clay appeared in the shape of a bowl. No. Uh, The skill of a master potter is shown in the delicacy and the attentiveness that they have to their own clay. Such that their own initial intentions end up being realized for the clay even as the clay pushes back on them. Yet, at the time of Jeremiah, Israel was pushing back on the hands of the divine potter. They had become so misshapen and so out of sorts. God had worked so patiently with them, and yet they continued to resist him, and they failed to become the kind of vessel that God had initially planned for them to become, a blessing to all the nations." Now, unfortunately, because they had become so misshapen, what Israel needed in Jeremiah's moment was to be collapsed back into a formless lump so that God could start with them again. And this is exactly what ends up happening. In 586 BCE, by the time Israel had persisted in their disobedience, God sent the Babylonians to take Judah and Benjamin, the southern kingdom, out into exile to Babylon. Now, because God remains always faithful to his promise to this people, that means that he does not cast them away. He does not chuck them in the bin because of their disobedience. He doesn't give up on them. In other words, he doesn't say, gosh, this piece of clay is being so obstinate. Let me just get a new piece of clay and hopefully that will work. No. God's promise to Abraham means that he's committed to working with this lump of clay. No matter how obstinate and and resistant it is, he has decided that he will work out his purposes with this lump. And so even in the midst of their exile to Babylon, God is not done with them yet. And so Jeremiah's message of hope, or rather God's message of hope for Jeremiah in this moment, is that when Israel inevitably goes into exile, it doesn't mean that God has abandoned them. Rather, he's disciplining them. He's returning this, A, this misshapen vessel back into its formless lump so that he can begin again. So that in this process of being disciplined, Israel needs to know that they are still in the hands of the divine potter. No matter how many times he has to discipline them, no matter how many times they resist, God is still forming them. And so he says to Jeremiah, just as the clay is in the hands of the potter, the potter who collapses the misshapen vessel back to start over again, just as the clay is in the hands of that potter, O house of Israel, so you are in my hands. In other words, I'm still working with you, I will keep working with you, and I, and I am not done with you yet. Now this story, this really beautiful story about God as the potter of Israel as clay, is not just this one-time thing. It's not just this ancient people who are likened to a ball of clay. In fact, Uh, In Genesis 2, in this deeply moving story of the creation of humanity, um, the creation of humanity is depicted as an event of divine pottery. Now It says in Genesis 2 that there was this wetness seeping up from the ground that watered all of the face of the earth. And God comes over to this wet ground, and he scoops up this lump. And then he starts to mold it, and he gives this lump legs and a body and arms and he gives it a head and he presses his thumb into it to make little slots for eyes. He gives it a nostril and a mouth and then he takes this unalive lump of clay and he breathes his own life, his own life-giving breath into the nostrils of this dusty clay-like statue and with a single breath that statue comes to life. And such is the story of Genesis of the first human being and how they came alive. Uh, Adam was created as a living statue of God. And yet, this comes with a catch. Even though the first human is filled with with God's own breath, he's still also made of the ground. He's still also made of clay, He's still also made of dust. In fact, even in that story, it doesn't even call the human a human. It calls the human an atom of dust, a human of dust. This person, though breathing in God's own breath, is still made from the earth. Now, let's think about this, right? Dust is really frail. It doesn't easily stick together, even if it's wet it will fall through our fingertips when we try to pick it up. If we try to make something out of dust, it can easily crack and crumble, even with the slightest disturbance. Um, Who's made a sandcastle before in their life? Who's seen one of their beautiful creations be absolutely destroyed by a big wave? Same thing, right? Even if you make this amazing, intricate and beautiful structure, there might just be one way that can just absolutely wipe out all of your glorious creation because stuff like that from the ground is really fragile, or, if we're speaking in clay terms, it's really malleable. It can be affected by things from the outside. Now, this frailness and this vulnerability has both a good side and a bad side, but we're gonna start with the bad news first. Uh, On the bad side, it means that we, as creatures of the dust, all live in a constant state of vulnerability. We are not only susceptible to illness and sickness and disease and death, but we're also susceptible to the illness of evil, to sin and to the ways that other people can harm us, to trauma and to tragedy. We are porous and vulnerable and malleable creatures and that means that we can experience pain. On the good side, It means that we can also be shaped by the hands of the divine potter. The malleability of humans that are made from the dust means that God can take any dusty lump of clay, no matter what else has hit it, no matter how misshapen it's become, no matter how out of sorts and wonky it is, he can form any lump of clay into something that is beautiful. Uh now recently as a part of my uh research uh, I've been studying uh, what is probably our oldest ancient Jewish prayer book outside of the Psalms. It's about 2,100 years old. Uh, I'd like to say in the morning service, I didn't say anything about how I researched the Bible. And so that sounded really weird in the morning. <laughs> um, so I thought I'd mention that at the beginning. Um, so I've been studying this, this ancient prayer book. Uh, and in it, there are some really, really wonderful reflections on, uh, on human beings as clay. And I really, I want to share uh, one paragraph with you, which I think is essentially captures what Jeremiah is saying. I give thanks to you, my Lord, because you have redeemed my life from the pit. You have raised me up to an eternal height so that I might endlessly walk on a celestial expanse. And so I know that there is hope for the one you formed from the dust. You have restored my damaged self away from sin so that I would stand in the company of angels You have worked artistically with dust, and you have worked so powerfully with vessels of clay. I really want us to listen to those beautiful words. There is hope for those whom God formed from the dust. There is hope for the frail dust. Now, I think this really captures the message Uh, Of hope for Jeremiah. Um, What the potter and the clay imagery teaches us in this text and from Genesis is this. If you feel vulnerable to sin, you are also vulnerable to change. If you've been devastated by pain, if you've been traumatized by tragedy, you can be remade. You can be remolded you can be reshaped and you can be restored to life. If you feel like you're a heap of dust and clay that lives in a pit, you can be formed into something that stands in the company of the angels. And not just because we are capable of change, but because God is a master potter and can work with any lump of clay. Which means that God is not done with you yet. Now this means that whatever stage we're at in life, in our uh, spiritual walk or whatever, uh, we are in God's hands. And if you've pushed back against the hands of the divine potter, against God's own hands, that doesn't mean that you are too far gone That doesn't mean that he is totally done with you. There is hope for all those he has formed from the dust. I will find this page. Now, uh, I think there's one last thing that this image uh, of the clay and the potter teaches us. This process is not automatic. This process doesn't happen right away. Again, Jeremiah isn't portraying God as some magician that snaps his fingers and boom, there's a great bowl there. No, it's a story about, it's an image of how God patiently and persistently works with these stubborn and difficult and hard to work with lumps of clay, which means that being formed by the hands of the divine potter is not an easy or a comfortable thing. And it's often not a straightforward thing. Often God will push his hands upon us, and maybe we're going to push back. It doesn't happen right away. God isn't going to mold an intricate and beautiful sculpture just in a single day. But all that being the case, you may think, well, if it's this long and torturous and difficult journey, where do I even begin? And I would suggest to begin with this. Okay, God. Yeah formed me. Start there. You can start with trusting that God is a masterful potter that can work with any kind of lump of clay that he is given, and trusting him that he can form you into something that is beautiful, something that can walk on the heights of the celestial expanse, something that is worthy of being in the company of angels. If you trust that God is capable of doing so, That is the first step to being formed by the hands of God, by being formed by the hands of the divine potter. Now, at the same time, I would urge you, don't resist his hands. As we see in this passage today, it is indeed possible to push back and resist the hands of God when he's forming us. He's not going to force us into a relationship with him. He's not going to force you to become something that you refuse to become. But I urge you, don't resist him. Because being worked on by God's own hands is a wonderful and glorious thing. And he can work so powerfully with any lump of clay that he can transform it into a creature worthy of being in the company of angels. And this means that there is hope for the dust. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you persist with us, that you are patient with us, that you have limited yourself to stand in relationship with us. We pray that you would make us responsive to your hands when they press upon us let us trust you to form us into something wonderful. And we long for the day when we are clothed not with bodies of dust and clay, but with bodies of light. May we look forward to that day and trust in your power to transform all things for good. Amen.